The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. You go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of James. We're going to be looking in the third chapter. I really felt to take a break away from what we're doing in the book of First Corinthians because in the last several weeks, uh, boy, I've just been hearing person after person within the body of just expressing different trials that they have been going through in their life. Uh, I know me, I, I just want to talk to you vulnerably a little bit this morning. I've been having a trial in my life the last couple of weeks, but it's one of those internal trials. Does anybody know what that means? Um, and so trials come in various shapes and forms in our life. And how many of us know because we're Christians does not mean that we do not face trials, right? How many of you are going through a trial right now in your life? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, how many of you have been through a trial in your life? Let me see your hands. Now, the last question is, how many of you are going to be going through a trial in your life? Okay, so we're all in the same boat. And when James writes this letter, and um, he talks about trials in three specific places, and James is a little bit um, ADD, I think. He kind of starts a topic, he goes into something else, and then he comes back to the topic, and he starts his letter by saying, count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. And we go, yeah, right, James, you count it joy, because you're not going through the trial that I'm going through, right? But he says, count it all joy. Um, because when you persevere through that trial, I'm paraphrasing what he says, uh, there is a, there's a work that God is doing in your life through that trial. You see, sometimes trials come in our lives, just quite frankly, because we make stupid decisions. Anybody ever made a stupid decision and you face a trial, okay? Sometimes, though, the Bible tells us that God actually ordains trials that we will face in our life. In other words, He purposes situations in our lives that He knows are going to be trying to us. And it's not to test us to see whether or not we make an A on the paper or we fail the paper, but it's to test us, to prove us, to strengthen us, and also to conform us to the likeness of His Son, Jesus. I heard it said a long time ago when somebody was talking about a difficult person in their life and it's a real trial, well, the response was, listen, that person in your life that's hard to get along with right now that's creating this trial, that is the chisel in God's hand that He's using to shape you to the conformity and the likeness of His Son, Jesus. And so God uses all of these things in our lives. But James says in chapter 1 that when we're facing a trial, if any of us lacks wisdom, right? Because when we hit a trial, it seems the first question, if you're like me, that I ask is, God, why? Why, am I fa- why is this happening? God, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing A, B, C, and D, and, but I'm in this trial. Why is this happening to me? And like me, you may say, God, get me out of this, right? Right? I want to know nobody likes trials, but if we follow through the thoughts in the book of James, James tells us that God intends for us 
to go through those trials and to persevere, not look for a way to bail, because God has something that He's working in us through that trial, because He so desires to conform us to the likeness of His Son, Jesus. You see, Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those that He loves. No earthly father worth his salt withholds discipline from his son and daughter because he loves them. And through that discipline, there's training. And sometimes trials come in the fashion of discipline. But after I've asked the question of why, the next question that I need to ask when I'm in the midst of a trial is what? First it's God why, but then now it's God what? God, what is it that you are wanting to show me? Because I know that you're a sovereign God and there's nothing in my life that comes that first has not passed through your fingers of love, right? Now, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me, Lord? What is it that you're trying to show me? And then the question, God, what do I need to do with this in my life and how do I need to apply it? And so we ask that question now. So if we we take those two and we come to James chapter 3, he comes back to this topic of wisdom and what we're to do in asking for wisdom. He says this, follow along with me, beginning in verse 13. He makes the question, he says the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, we pray that as we look at this truth in your word, because God, every one of us face trials or facing trials, and God, we ask the question, Lord, and we say, God, please give us wisdom. But Lord, your word tells us that that we're not to doubt when we ask for wisdom because, God, we know there are two sources of wisdom. There's your wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. God, you tell us not to be doubters in that, to be tossed to and fro, confused, not to be double-minded. So, God, we want to have your wisdom in our lives applied so that we might bring you glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It says in verse 15, or he asks a question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, if you look up the word wise or wisdom in the dictionary, it's going to tell you that that to be wise or to have wisdom is, is to be one who makes a speculative judgment in a situation that speculative, meaning based on what normal patterns or circumstances are. In other words, if A, B, and C happen, then this is the normal result. And so that's wisdom in the worldly definition or a dictionary definition. But when the Bible talks about wisdom, it talks about it in a different fashion. 
And the fashion that the Bible talks about in wisdom is taking that which we know is truth and bears the test of truth, that it's truth in all places, in all circumstances, in all people's lives, at all times, and that's the truth of the Word of God. And to apply the truth of the Word of God in our life, that is wisdom. And so when James talks about this wisdom, he's, he's talking about a godly wisdom. He's talking about a wisdom whose source is God. And he asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? It's the only time this word understanding is used in all of the New Testament. And, and what, it, uh, what it defines itself as is a specialist or a professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to practical situations. And if I can paraphrase what James is saying here, James is really saying, who is truly skilled in the art of living? You realize there's an art to living, right? The the writer in the book of Proverbs tells us, which is a book of wisdom, that he has written these things to us so that we might live a prudent or a managed or a skilled life. And folks, it's God's desire that we take His truth and apply it into our lives so that we live managed and skilled lives as the opposite of that would be helter-skelter and just all over the map kind of lives. Let me ask you this question. What kind of life do you want to live? You want to live a skilled life or do you want to live a helter-skelter life? Well, see, it all depends, I think, and I look at the balance of Scripture, is what wisdom we apply in our lives when stuff happens, because stuff does happen, right? And so we want to apply God's Word. And He says in this, this person who's wise and understanding, then, then let his life, by the conduct, by his conduct, let him show his works or his life in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, a, a, a lifestyle that is the opposite of having an I-can-do-it-I'm-my-own-boss, arrogant kind of lifestyle, but have a meekness knowing that they have all this wisdom that's been given from God, all this power that's there, but living in humility, recognizing that that wisdom comes from God and not on our own. So it says, let them live a meek life. It's the opposite of being arrogant. I had the fortunate uh, experience of growing up in my adult years with a mentor in my life. Some of you know him. His name is Dr. Ron Long. And every time that I was with Dr. Long, he would say, you know what? When you get rid of that arrogance, you're going to be okay. And what he meant was, you know what? Right now, you're just full of yourself. You think you can handle and you think you can do everything within what's contained in you. And as soon as that gets out of your life, you're going to be okay because you're going to realize that you're nothing and you need to depend on God in everything. You know, sometimes I went away almost in tears because he'd look at me and say, you're so arrogant. I'm like, well, how, how can he? I thought he loved me. No, he loved me and he wanted to tell me I'm arrogant. And so... What James is saying, listen, live a life in meekness, not full of yourself, not full of your own efforts and your own energies, but depend and trust on God. And this wisdom that he talks about is a God kind of wisdom. Have you ever been with somebody and and they've spoken something and you're like, you know what, that is wisdom and you know where it came from. It came from God. 
And so James is saying, listen, there's this kind of wisdom that God desires to impart to us, but don't be double-minded. Don't, don't take that wisdom that God gives and say, you know what, well, there's this other wisdom, and it sounds a lot better to me, so I'm going to go with that. James said, listen, you'll be tossed to and fro by the wind. The kind of wisdom that God gives is described by Job in chapter 9, verse 4, like this. Talking about God, he says that he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. God is wise at heart and he's mighty in strength. And then he asks a question, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? What Job is saying, listen, God is full of all wisdom. And there's never been a person that's hardened their heart against the word of God and his wisdom and his instruction that has ever succeeded. And so if we want to succeed in life, we want to hear God's wisdom and apply that in our lives. The psalmist described it this way in Psalm 104, verse 24. He says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. And he he was talking about all the works of God, his creation, his power, his preeminence, All of this and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We understand that the fear that he's talking about here is not to be afraid of God, but to have an awe and a reverence for God. If I put it another way, the fear of the Lord is recognizing that God is far above you and far above me. And to have a reverence and a worship of Him because of who God is. And he says, listen, recognizing that is the beginning of wisdom. And then he goes on to say, however, fools despise wisdom and instruction. You ever seen somebody, known somebody... Maybe yourself that really, you know, they've gotten the wisdom from God to apply in the situation in their life. But they're like, you know what? I know that's good, but I don't want to do that. I just want to take this other wisdom because I want to get what I want to get. And I think this is better for me. And you want to look at them and say, you are a, right? But fools despise wisdom and understanding, he says. Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. Paul kind of concludes this when he writes in Romans chapter 11, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I can imagine as Paul was writing these words, there may have been the the passion in his expression as he's contemplated all of who God is. And he might say, Oh, man, boy, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You see, we have all of that, according to James, at our disposal. James says, hey, man, if you're in a trial and you lack wisdom, Ask God because He's going to give you this kind of wisdom because He is the source of that wisdom. Now, 
I would only be a fool if I didn't want to receive that, right? And so James is laying the table here saying, listen, if you, if, you want, if you want wisdom and understanding, look to God and His wisdom. And then he gives a, a breaker here in it as if he has another thought. And he says, but listen, there is a condition that is an internal condition that you need to be aware of that that needs to be right before you just want to get the recipe in a situation. And that is a heart attitude that he talks about. He says this in verse 14. But, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. Phillips translates it this way. He says, but if your heart is full of rivalry and bitter jealousy, then do not boast of your wisdom. Don't deny the truth that you must recognize in your inmost heart. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at what? God looks at the heart. And you see, in every situation of our life, while we typically look in trials in particular at the outward circumstances, the outward situation, where God is always working in our lives is in the inner man, in our heart. Because, see, you can condition a monkey to do certain things externally. I'm not calling you monkeys. But you can train a monkey to do certain routines of things, and you can train a Christian to do a certain routine of things on the outside, and it all looks good. But listen, it's nothing. What God's concerned about is in the heart. You see, real change that takes place in our life is not from an outward in. It's from an internal outward. And so God's concerned about the heart, and James is saying, if I can tell you, say this, listen, you're looking for wisdom to apply in a situation, external circumstances, man, dig in and get to the heart of the matter first. Now, if you're like me, I don't like looking at the heart. Because if I ask God, God, show me my heart, you know what God's going to do? He's going to show me my heart. And that's where the stuff has to be taken care of, right? I want a recipe that tells me how I can handle the situation. And God says, no, J-Mo, listen, I'm committed to conform you to the likeness of my son Jesus. And the way that I've got to do that is I've got to get deep within your heart, and I've got to get this stuff right, and it's got to come to the surface. Because then, right, it's painful. It's, it's like radiation or chemotherapy. We, we know that it heals, but it's very painful in the process. And so God says, listen, if you want wisdom in your trials, if you want to hear from me in it and change the patterns in your life, let me do a work in your heart. This word bitter is, is translated undrinkable water. I lived in South Florida for 11 years. I never got past the sulfur smell of the water, right? It was bitter water. It was unfit. And he says, listen, this, this, this selfishness, it's, it's bitter. It's, it's, it's detestable. It's to be spit out. And he says, check your heart and see if there's not bitter jealousy or envy, resentment, attitudes towards another. And you know what I've learned? Sometimes... These things can go on for years and years and decades and decades and on and on. 
It, it may be resentment where you or I may feel like as though we have the right but it's doing damage not to anybody else but to you and to me this, this bitter this detestable envy and jealousy he says, you've got to get rid of that. Let, let me do a work in that. And it's not something that we can get rid of ourselves. It's something that we have to say, God, do this in me because I can't do it myself. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's the only time this word is used. And, and when it was used in the Greek originally, here's what it meant. And this is going to explain why there's so much mess in Washington today. The Greek word that's translated selfish ambition came to describe anyone who entered politics for selfish reason and sought to achieve his own agenda at any cost. Can you see why it's so messed up? He goes on to say that, that this stuff is not only damaging, not only is, is it dangerous, but he says in verse 15... This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Meaning that kind of wisdom that's, that's motivated by those wrong heart attitudes, it's, it's earthly. In other words, it's of the world, and we know who this the prince of the air of the world. He says, not only is it worldly or earthly, but it's unspiritual. It's characterized by humanness. You see, man has his answer to situation, and it's flawed. Right? But he says, seek this kind of wisdom that's godly wisdom. And then he says, this kind of wisdom is also demonic. Um. We have a tendency sometimes to discount demonic activity, right? Because we're afraid of being accused of those kind of people, right? But do you remember what it was as recorded in Isaiah that was the motivation in Lucifer's heart where he rebelled against God and God cast him and a third of the angels who are now demonic, who are now demons, do you know what the motivation in his heart was that caused God to do that? What did he desire? He desired to be like God. He was jealous and he was envious. And he wanted the worship and the praise that God was getting and he rebelled against him. And it stands the reason that if that was his motivating factor then, he's an expert at it. And that's the same motivating factor that demons run around trying to seed that stuff in our hearts. You see, I've learned that this stuff operates in the workplace. This stuff operates in families, between husband and wife between children and moms and dads, between brothers and sisters, estranged relationships. It operates in the body of Christ as well. And the enemy is always at work to try to bring a scourge and a defamation in the body of Christ. And this is one of his greatest tools to use. 
And so he says, listen, guys. Boy, examine your heart first. And, and then when, when the heart is in that place, I'm going to give wisdom. He goes on to say in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Boy, isn't that true? Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be every kind of vile practice. Have you seen those situations? Have you been in the midst of those situations? Are you in the midst of one of those situations? There's disorder, there's chaos, every vile practice. And can I say this? God does not intend for us to live in that. Listen, Jesus was crucified and the curse was broken so that we might have a relationship with Him and now have a wisdom from Him and to be healed from all of that stuff so that we can live a life that's quite different than the life that we once lived. Now, having said all of that, that's, that's kind of the, the bad stuff out there. It's a place we've got to search our heart. And then he gives a contrast in verse 17, which we're going to see is quite different from that other wisdom. He said, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Boy, there's a purity. The best word picture that I can help you understand this word pure is when, that when I was growing up, my mother used to make homemade preserves. Anybody's mom make homemade preserves? Yeah. Anybody still make homemade preserves? By the way, I love homemade preserves. <laughs> you, got any, you got any extra, man? <laughs> Bring them my way. But when, when mother would put the, the jellies or the preserves in those little mason jars, and after the, everything had gone, you know, all the seals pop she would hold it up to the light in the kitchen window and what she was checking to see was whether or not that jelly was pure you see if it was cloudy it, it meant that it wasn't going to be it wasn't a good batch of jelly and he says wisdom that is from above is pure And you know it when you see it. Don't ask me how mom knew when it was a pure jelly. She just knew because she saw it. And God's wisdom, when we know that it's His wisdom, it's pure. It's uncloudy. It's not morally defiled. And he says it's peaceable. Meaning that when, when we have God's wisdom, it will be peaceable that where there's a freedom from anxiety or inner turmoil, right? Now, be careful, though, um, making decisions based on emotions. I've heard a lot of people say in my life, you know, I'm making this decision and I really have peace about it. And I'm thinking, that's as anti-biblical as anything I've heard, the decisions that you're making, and you've got peace about it? 
You see, peace will never triumph over purity. Right? But on the contrary, when it's pure wisdom, when the answer that we've received is pure and we know that it's God, there is going to be peace that is everlasting in it. And so he says, seek this wisdom that's, that's pure, that's from God, that's peaceable, and then he says, that's gentle. This has to do more with relationships. And, and needing wisdom in relationships. Because the response that is a godly wisdom will cause you and I to respond in gentleness and meekness rather than anger and disputes. You see, if my response is ever, you know, I, boy, I, yeah, I really fouled up. I messed that up. But you, right? And there you go. Out of the game, baby. Lost. Gentle. And the response is going to be there. You see, heavenly wisdom never throws others under the bus. Is a way I can put it. Heavenly wisdom always puts people first in God's economy. Other people. Right? Doesn't the Bible say, consider others how? Better than yourselves. And so this is godly wisdom. It's not fleshly wisdom. This is open to reason. When we know that we've received wisdom from God, that we're going to be open to reason with others on that decision or that wisdom that we've received. You see, when I know that I've, I've really received wisdom from God, I have no problem with anybody else questioning the wisdom that I've received or questioning my decision. You hear me? But if there's any of this other stuff in it, there's selfish ambition, any bitter jealousy or whatever, when that wisdom is questioned, I'm defensive. That little defense attorney, pop, attorney pops up on my shoulder and says, plead your case, J-Mo. No, godly wisdom says, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm completely at peace knowing that this is pure, this is from God, and I'm open to reason. I'm open to counsel. He says, this wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Again, this has to do with relational. That where there is godly wisdom in trials, especially in relationship, it means that I'm going to show mercy to others, that I am going to not give them what they deserve. <laughs> Man, I want them to get twice as much as they deserve, right? They see where the Holy Spirit is there. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to leave this up to God and let God deal with the outcome, right? It's impartial. I'm running out of time. It's impartial, meaning that God is no respecter of persons. And you see the wisdom that, that He gives, applying it in a certain situation, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in a company, etc., you know, it's, it's, it's not a quick pro quo. It's not to favor one group or over another. 
It's not to place my desires above another, but it's impartial because it's just right. And then lastly, he says it's sincere, without hypocrisy. It's sincere. It's God's wisdom. Now here's the promise in verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A guy by the name of Dr. Kent Harrelson wrote this. He said, when we get tangled up in our problems, be still. God wants us to be still so that He can untangle the knot. When we get tangled up in our problems, be still. God wants us to be still so He can untangle the knot. I've had to be still some this last week. Seeking wisdom, the why and the what. The reason I've had to be still is because I've, I've had to ask God, God, go in, the, go in the deep places. And show me what needs to be changed here. Some of you this morning need to be still. I said, God, would you go into the deep places, deal with what needs to be done there, and put me in a place that I can receive wisdom that comes from you, that's pure, it's faultless, and so that I can apply it in this situation. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.